Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the options and actions still available after the Supreme Court overturns Roe for those seeking abortions and reproductive justice more widely. Plus, we give an obligatory explanation of how we got to now. Clips today are from Amicus, This Is Hell, The Rachel Maddow Show, Amanpour, Serious Inquiries Only, Start Making Sense, Red Flag Radio, and the Tom Hartman Program, with additional members-only clips from Shortwave and Serious Inquiries Only. It came up even in the, the preview for Slow Burn, the, the we won't go back, we won't go back. One thing that came up in my reporting is there are some ways in which we actually can't go back. And part of that is because science has advanced. And the most important thing I should tell you about that is we've got abortion pills. And a lot of people in the U.S. actually don't know what they are, which is amazing, considering that in 2020, 54% of abortions on record were accomplished with abortion pills. Meanwhile, we're at a point where still 90% of abortions in the U.S. are in the first trimester. That's when these pills are used, and they are becoming increasingly popular. Also, they allow people to have an abortion in the privacy of their own home, and so I'd love to introduce you to them. This is Mifepristone. Mifepristone is known also as RU486. It's the French abortion pill. This little hexagonal creature is misoprostol, also known as Cytotec. It was originally created to help people with stomach ulcers. So when we talk about abortion pills, most people are actually talking about those two different pharmaceuticals. The way they work is Mifepristone is essentially a progesterone blocker. That's one of the hormones needed to maintain a pregnancy. And misoprostol still induces cramps. The backstory there is that it was introduced in Brazil in the 80s, and the women there were very creative and saw on the label that people were not to take it if they were pregnant because it could induce cramps. Lo and behold, some people did not want to be pregnant and discovered that it was a potent abortifacient. So today, the combination of pills is FDA approved for ending pregnancies up to 10 weeks. And the World Health Organization, meanwhile, is a little less conservative. They have protocols for using them up to 12 weeks and even after that. So how do people get the pills? What do they do with them? Before the pandemic, there was a rule federally that for mifepristone, one had to actually go to the doctor and take it in front of the doctor, which doesn't make a lot of sense because when you take it, nothing happens. It's not like you grow a third head. It's not like you have an abortion on the spot. It's a slow process. So people had to go and take it, and then they were given the rest of the pills to take home. That restriction was lifted during the pandemic. It it was briefly reinstated, but now it's gone for good. This led to a flowering of telemedicine startups, all offering the pill, many of them with video consultations. So now, depending on where you are, there's a great website called plancpills.org, and you can put in your state, since we know this is all going state by state, and that that's even been happening before Roe, and figure out how to get them. For the Atlantic story, I ordered them from Aid Access, which is a group based in Europe. They actually send them to people in all 50 states, even in states where they're already restricted because they are out of our jurisdiction. And they also supply them for what's known as advanced provision. Some of our viewers may have read earlier today that people are stocking up on pills while they can, just out of concern. And to the best of my knowledge, and I I think other people are trying to start offering them for advanced provision, aid access will actually offer them to people as kind of a break under glass sort of thing. 
So that's what's going on with that. But even before this decision comes down, medication abortion has really become one of the hottest fronts in the fight over control over women's bodies. Uh, We know that in the first three months of this year, more than 100 restrictions were passed on medication in the states. That's part of a much larger picture where more than 1,300 state restrictions have been passed on abortion since Roe versus Wade. It's kind of death by a thousand cuts in that many places I spoke with activists and they said, like, look, Roe might as well not be the law of the land here already because the issue is access. So, for example, if you tell me, Jess, you can go to the moon Great. I'm so pleased that I have the freedom to go to the moon. But if you're not giving me a ticket, I am staying in my seat. Right. So it's the same thing. We have, for that reason, a very strong grassroots of abortion funds. There are more than 90 of them in the U.S. And they do the roll up your sleeves work of helping raise money for people who can't afford Pills or procedures. We know that since 1976, the federal Hyde Amendment has made abortion funding ineligible for um, uh, you can't get it through federal Medicaid. Basically, it's not supported. So abortion funds are amazing. I know everybody's saying donate to Planned Parenthood, but abortion funds are the kind of the unsung heroes that are also always short on resources. So we have the grassroots, the people who have kind of grown up in the cracks because Roe has been gutted so badly already by all of these restrictions. And then we have the underground. The underground is people basically doing a lot of different things extra legally is what we're talking about. Whether that's the activist I spoke with who mailed pills to a 13-year-old who was pregnant and did not want to be in Texas on the eve of the ban, women in Mexico offering to bring the pills over, misoprostol is available over the counter there as Cytotec, so people bring it in. Uh, Again, it's going to be a patchwork like it is now, and uh, people can afford to will be going to other states. I spoke to somebody who was bulletproofing vans to bring them to the borders of hostile states. So we can get into the diaspora there, but but I should probably stop. Uh, Yeah. And rant. It's really useful to hear what you're saying, Jess, because one of the most enduring lessons I had this year came on my podcast when Professor Catherine Frankie reminded me that the day after Roe, <laughs> Roe was not the law of the land, that since there's been a Hyde Amendment, that since there has been uh, huge, huge amounts of restriction that have burgeoned in recent years, the fact is that Roe was a paper right for an awful lot of people, particularly the folks that you're describing in this sort of desert area of the country where it has been actually not a real right or a meaningful right or an achievable right for a long time. Jess, can you talk for a minute, if you would, about I'm sure you're getting uh, a million fold the questions that the rest of us are getting about what's the best thing to do? Who do I support? Who do I help? What am I meant to do? And my snippy answer tends to be invent a time machine, go back three years, care about the composition of the Supreme Court. But that's not super helpful to our viewers and listeners. What are you telling folks who really, really feel as though they're looking at a juggernaut here? And if what you are saying and Melissa is saying, it's going to get exponentially worse, what are you telling folks to do? Yeah, well, I I do think actually your time machine thing isn't that bad, because I do think we need to remind people to vote. uh, And we do need to remind people that this is a long game. I think everybody's adrenalized right now, and in kind of fight or flight mode. And 
people have seen this coming for a very long time. And again, Roe has essentially not been the law of the land for a lot of people in many areas of the country and in many communities, often the people who are most marginalized when it comes to getting medical care in general. So looking at it, I I did mention abortion funds before, and I don't want to just keep, you know, beating that horse, but it's it's so important. And if, if you look at the website for the National Network of Abortion Funds, they're all over the place and they're local and they're grassroots and they're doing the work. People also volunteer as clinic escorts to help patients get past protesters. There are just all sorts of things. And again, uh, those funds are a great way to reach out. Uh, repro justice organi- organizations are always looking for volunteer help. There are tons of places where one could donate if one were so inclined. There's a really cool organization called If, When, How, and they are all about basically protecting people who are involved with self-managed abortion. So they have a defense fund for that. They have a helpline for that. People can call them up. So I would urge people to look past the headlines and the big names and look for the people who are in the trenches and, and maybe less recognized that way because many communities have them and they, they need support. According to the network, I believe in 2019, they were only able to feel 25% of the calls they got because they've always been under-resourced, and that was before this. So, I mean, basically, the house was on fire already. Gasoline has been poured on it, uh, but there are, are things you can do to show up with a bucket if you want. Let me talk about abortion rights and the history of abortion rights in the United States. In the early United States, as in most places in early modern times, the very definition of abortion was very different from what it is today. Human life was not thought to have begun at conception, and a human fetus was not considered a human being. Life began in that conception back then with what was generally referred to as the quickening, which is not a bad Highlander movie, but the moment from which on out movement in the fetus can be detected by the mother, and or by others. If a pregnancy ended before that time, before a fetus quickened, usually no tears were shed, no garments rendered, and certainly nobody went to jail for murder, and no remains were buried. As historian Leslie Regan put it, Whether or not an abortion was lawful and morally right went hand-in-hand with women's experiences of their own bodies. It was them, after all, who felt the baby quicken. The criminalization of abortion did not happen out of ethical reasons. But, well, but, this is America, after all, so it was classism, profit-seeking, and white supremacy that, that were the reasons that abortions were criminalized. Most of the people who performed, or rather induced, abortions in the early 1800s, so in the early days of, of, of the United States, were herbalists and midwives, people generally outside of uh, the emerging American medical profession, and also women, right? In the American medical profession was mostly men. And so, not mostly, were men. Uh, and so the earliest proponents of anti-abortion policies were doctors, who sought to get rid of pesky competition in the, in the 1820s. Uh, and they were later helped by Western expansion boosters uh, by the mid-century when the drive to conquer uh, the rest of the 
unsettled continent came into full swing, and so abortions, by that logic, had to become illegal, so the white man could outbreed the red, the red and the brown and the black. So, for those keeping score, abortions were outlawed for classist and profit-seeking reasons, and then basically just for white supremacy. In defense of Justice Alito's position, both of those issues, white supremacy and profit-seeking, are, of course, deeply rooted in American history and tradition. But none of those early anti-abortion movements had much to do with religious reasons, or were directly concerned with uh, the life of the child. Later in the 19th century, most states banned abortion uh, unless they were necessary for medical reasons. And in practice, this translated into poor women either being jailed until a few decades later medical practitioners performing the abortions became the target of legal ire, or poor women just died be- trying to have an abortion. Um, and meanwhile, wealthy women had neither of these issues because they, or their husbands, or baby daddies, could afford better doctors and lawyers. But how bad was it really for the poor women? So, in terms of statistics, by the early 20th century, about one out of every five women who died from child-related complications uh, died of results from botched abortions. Uh, About 2,700 in the year 1930, which is a year uh, we actually have reliable numbers for. And by the early 1960s, this number rose rose to one out of four in white women. Among women of color and black black women, meanwhile, every other death, so every second death, one every one in two deaths from childbearing-related complications came from botched abortions. And uh, when calls rose for abortion legalization in the early 1970s, affluent white women had long established what amounted to a thriving abortion tourism industry from America to countries that had in the meantime loosened their abortion laws. Most of those voices calling for abortion legalization were medical practitioners who were on the front line of witnessing the scope of the damage on the nation's uteruses that illegal abortions had caused. And then Roe v. Wade came along in 1973, ending almost a century of abortion restriction. But as this little exercise should demonstrate, abortion was not much of an religious issue ultimately. Not at that point, anyway. It became one when it was made one, um, when the American right realized they would lose public support if they kept on being openly, blatantly racist. And so they turned on abortion as a rallying cause. The case that galvanized the religious right was when the IRS tried to take Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status away after the Wingnut Institute of Higher Education maintained racially discriminatory practices, segregation, and a ban on interracial dating, which the university, by the way, kept until the year 2000. So on Bob Jones University, you could not date somebody who was not from your race until the year 2000. Um, So Bob Jones Jr., Jerry Falwell Sr., and other ghouls got their well-coiffed heads together and tried to figure out how to maintain power in a world that broadly rejected their backwards ideas. 
And that's when they came up with the idea of championing anti-abortion instead of segregation. And the trick worked. Now the religious right got their ducks in a row, all waving the banners opposing abortion and getting outraged about that, even though only a few years earlier, as in the case of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which in 1971 still rallied for illegal abortions, uh, many of the abortion haters were in fact, well, they were not bothered by the practice in the least. The people who were bothered by abortions for the longest time were Catholics, actually. Um, but this is, but Catholics, for the most most of American history, constituted uh, uh, mostly in a minority, so they didn't matter that much. Granted, that changed into the present, um, but uh, that's and into the present. But that that's that's a different story for a different time. Um, but anyway, so if you ask any good religious scholar, though about religious reasons to be opposed to abortion, uh, they will tell you there is actually not much, if anything, in the Bible that forbids abortions. And on the contrary, that the Bible establishes a principle that the mother's life in, is always more important than the child's, um, as in if uh, you have to decide whether uh, the mother should die or the child because of certain complications, then the mother should survive because, well, the mother can make more babies. And if if the child is already in danger, chances are the child might die anyway. And then if, you, if both the mother and the child die, then, well, there's going to be fewer babies at the, end of the, at the end of the day or the year or something. Um, but so what does this mean? So mostly it means that the far right is full of shoot. Only, I'm not saying shoot, you're smart, you know what I mean. It's one big hypocrisy. Just as Alito is simply lying when he's denying that abortion rights have have no historical place in the United States. Sure, there's people who actually believe this nonsense, but underneath it all, there is no good argument. Abortion is an issue that helps the religious right to maintain power. That's it. It's not about life, it's not about God, it's not about religion. It's just about some people having the power to tell other people what to do with their bodies and what to do with their lives, and then getting real hissy when they're being told no. So, what can you do about all this nonsense? Other than making no friends at the next family gathering, uh, reciting the things that I, that I told you here. Well, how about donating a few bucks to your local abortion fund? Go to abortionfunds.org slash funds to find a list of abortion funds listed by state. Let's talk about this believability gap, because it's 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 obvious and it's widespread. There are reasonable people who just have not been around long enough to understand what what it see what it was like for women who couldn't get abortions who looked for alternatives in many cases alternatives that were either unsafe or unaffordable and now that it is upon us what does this clarion call say what are people who are now coming to terms with the fact that this may be very real in a matter of months uh roe v wade could be gone abortion protections could be gone they could fall very quickly in 26 states and possibly more as time goes on what does the clarion call say? What What is one to do? You no, know, I think it's the courts have made it really clear. The Supreme Court has made it really clear. We can't rely on the courts to protect our constitutional rights. So the clarion call is we have to hold our elected officials accountable. We have to fight back and push back 
about the encroaching uh, the encroaching uh, extremism from the GOP, the rise of authoritarianism. It's deeply connected with the fight around voting rights and democracy reform. Eight out of 10 Americans in this country support a constitutional right to abortion. Yet we have a court that is poised to overturn that right. We have a majority being ruled by a minority, a religious extremist minority. So I think the wake up call is to fight back and that we have to hold elected officials accountable up and down the ballot. That's Congress. That's state houses. That's governors. That's attorneys general. And we need in this, this midterm election for our base to be energized like they've never been before. And we're hoping this will be the opportunity to really raise that awareness. In just a few moments, I'm going to speak with um, Pramila Jayapal, who has um, tried to move this forward in, in Congress. And there's obviously been a lot of discussion about doing that. In your opinion, what does codifying abortion rights look like? Is that something that is done at the federal level? Is it done at the state level? Is it both. What does success look like in codifying legal protection for for abortion rights? So um, Pramila Jayapal and Nancy Pelosi and the team in the House have already passed the Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, Chuck Schumer uh, has tried. Uh, we had an unsuccessful effort. We are uh, He's bringing it back next week. Uh, so we're really excited to support him there. But look, it, it's both. It's all of the above. It's state legislative efforts. It's efforts like, Gov- like Governor Gavin Newsom. It's efforts like Gretchen Whitmer fighting back with you know litigation. Um, it's ballot initiatives in places like Kansas and Michigan, as well as federal legislation. And there's also talk, uh, and I think there needs to be really, we need to be really big and bold in how we imagine the future of reproductive freedom in this country. We need to be thinking about constitutional amendments. Uh, we need to be thinking about the ERA. We need to be thinking about an equality amendment. All cards have to be on the table. We have to fundamentally reimagine how we want to protect this right in the future. But we have a lot of options, but it all comes down to the access to the ballot box and voting. So the fact that we have an extremist GOP that has really aggressively attacked our fundamental freedom to vote is hand in glove with these attacks on abortion rights, um, the attacks on trans kids, the attacks on LGBTQ communities. Um, It's all connected. And we really need to wake up as organizations across the uh, progressive ecosystem. And I know Pramila is really leading the charge here and understand how intertwined these fights are and how intertwined these attacks are. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, was pro-choice. Most evangelicals don't know that. He refused to participate with us in our seminars, even though he and my father were friends. He said, Fran, you know, you've made a mistake here. I think people, women ought to have a choice. Dr. Criswall of the Southern Baptist Convention, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and for Americans, they will understand that's the most conservative group of evangelicals in America. He was pro-choice. He even preached sermons on choice. We had to convince evangelicals, you know, I think a lot of commentators looking back think somehow this was always part of the evangelical movement. It was not. Abortion was legal in the United States up until uh, the 19th century when, and, and into the early 20th century when the American Medical Association tried to push women out of the midwife business, as it were, and take this over for professional gynecologists and so on. It had not been part of American history to be anti-abortion. It was a new phenomena that we had to talk evangelicals into. But once we talked them into it, the reason it became a thing is Republican leaders like our friend Jack Kemp 
Gerald Ford, the president. My parents were friends with his. They would stay in the White House. His son, Mike, was living in my house. His wife, Gail, was babysitting our daughter, Jessica, et cetera, et cetera. We were very connected with the early stages of the religious right. Once other evangelical leaders saw this as an easy fundraising tactic to keep people angry, babies are being murdered, we can raise money. And when people like Jack Kemp and Ronald Reagan and other people we knew realized that the apathetic evangelical majority that didn't even care about voting suddenly could be energized because they had lost the fight on segregation. And these segregationists like Jerry Falwell, now we gave them something new to fight. And, and so two big agendas happened, an anti-gay agenda and an anti-abortion agenda. And the anti-abortion agenda became the litmus test, became the red meat. That's why it caught on. It caught on because of money, fundraising by evangelical leaders, and it caught on because the Republicans suddenly said, aha, this apathetic group that barely votes and half of them vote for Democrats, we can energize them if we can create this into a moral crusade. So, so it was a very convenient thing for Republican leaders. And I think all these decades later, it is extraordinary to learn from you that it was not a political issue for the evangelicals. Pretty much it was really the Catholics, right, who were mostly in the forefront yeah, yeah, of, of I mean, anti Yeah. Yeah. Not only was it not a political issue, you have to understand our big fight was with evangelicals. The editorial board of Christianity Today magazine, the bastion flagship, flagship of evangelical Christianity, they were pro-choice at the time. They refused to, to endorse our film. Billy Graham, Dr. Criswell, on and on and on. It changed when it became a matter of convenience. But so what, what like time? Paul Weirich and other right-wing activists. Right. So what time period are we talking about? Because we know, we just mentioned, and, and, and you did, that C. Everett Koop was President Reagan's Surgeon General, and that that was at the same time the rise of what's known as the moral majority with Jerry Falwell and others. What actually changed? How did it, you've, you've talked about people realizing that it's a fundraising issue and they could fire up the base, so to speak. How, what was the process of making well, what, it into the issue that it is today? We made a good film series, if you want to call it good, in the technical sense. It had a huge impact on people. And as the audiences began to grow, and then we were getting picketed by people like the National uh, uh, NARAL and other uh, uh, pro-choice organizations, and it started getting into the news. But what really changed was my father and I would go around talking to people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, the televangelist, and convincing them that this was going to be a big thing, an issue. They had to be talked into it. And that's where my father really played an instrumental role on two fronts. One, tens of thousands of evangelical Christians started watching these films in seminars and then in churches and in schools and in high schools and so forth. And then the next thing that changed, we, we began to convince them through the films. They were very effective as propaganda. And then the next thing that happened is that leaders like Jerry Falwell, who had been a segregationist, decided his next big issue was going to be to fight the gay rights movement and the pro-life movement, he would adopt these things as a kind of a clarion call to his people. They were talked into this by my dad. And before that, they had not been in this camp. When it comes down to these moral issues of choosing life, it all is a matter of trust. Who do we trust? Do we trust judges on the Supreme Court or the federal bench put there by Donald Trump in a bargain with people like Ralph Reed and the other evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham, who said, look, here's our list from the Federalist Society. You appoint them and we'll bring you millions of voters. And it worked. Or do we trust women? 
But we have to trust someone, someone's opinion. And me personally, if I've learned anything over the last 70 years of being a father and grandfather and someone who does child care for, for my own children and grandchildren, it's this. If you don't trust women, why would you trust a gynecologist, a male white gynecologist? If you don't trust women to make choices, why would you trust a group of nine judges instead of the individual woman in making the choice? I trust women. Does that mean I think women or men or non-binary people whomever always make the right choice? No. But you've got to give someone the choice in these matters, all matters, where to educate a child, who to marry, pair bonded, to be to live a gay lifestyle, to be non-binary, whatever. These are choices that belong to individuals. They do not belong to the state. So and so when you see what's happening now, you you understand that it's not going to end there. Well, that's these what I was going to ask are you, start Frank. Taking choices away. That, yes. That's that's what yeah. I was going to finish up with, because, you know, you're you're very passionate now. You obviously regret deeply, you know, uh, how your talent got the U.S. to this point in terms of a culture war. But what do you think will happen next? Because we spoke to the opposing view yesterday on this program. We gave her plenty of time to to lay out her position. And she said, no, no, no. The fact that we don't want abortion doesn't mean that we're going to lobby to turn back, you know, gay marriage, interracial marriage, any of the other, you know, human rights issues that have been adjudicated by the Supreme Court. Do you believe that? Of course not. Look at Gorsuch. Look at these people who sat there in this in the Senate confirmation hearings and looked right into the eyes of the senators and said, we believe that this is a stated principle that will not be changed. They, 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 they gave their word. They said they would not change it. These are people are, are political ideologues. And the same ideology that takes away the right to choose is going to take away the right to gay marriage. The same ideology that is now changing the law in state house after state house in favor of Republican, not only gerrymandering, but the kind of thing that Donald Trump said, where he's still claiming to be president somehow, that the vote was stolen. And now all of a sudden, voting rights themselves are in question. If you had gone back 40 years ago and asked Gerald Ford or any of these people, are you ever going to be part of a, Demo- of a, of a Republican Party that's going to push against voter rights for African-Americans? They would have said that's never going to happen. Right. It's happening now. ask, were you in an area where this was like pretty easy to accomplish or were you in an area where at the time were you living in an area where this was difficult or? Uh, no, actually here, this is where I'm living now. Right. And uh, it was it was fairly easy to, to access an abortion pretty, pretty quickly. I had to jump through the hoops that you might imagine, you know, they have to do the, the two appointments or whatever. But no, it was fine. My experience with it was was pretty streamlined. But yeah, so I had I was, you know, I was in a stable job. I wasn't in an abusive relationship. I wasn't raped. None of those things. I was I was 25. I was in a committed long term relationship with the man that I later married. Again, had a had a stable job very early in my career. And and I had no reason to think that the pregnancy wouldn't have been healthy. It probably would have been. So I, I am clearly in all ways, like not the case that is usually discussed here. I'm, I'm not the 10 year old girl who got raped by a family member. And again, I, I understand why those cases are invoked so much. They are the most vulnerable. They need to be protected. But that was not me. I was and am a privileged, relatively privileged, white, middle class, professional woman. And I knew and have known every day since then that I did not want to have a child. It's not in me for some reason. 
And I still vividly remember the moment that I saw that positive pregnancy test. And not only did I feel nothing positive, like I didn't even feel any ambivalence about it. Like all I felt was dread and depression and hopelessness. And when I imagine what that moment might have been like if abortion had been illegal at that moment, I genuinely do not know what I would have done. I think I would have been willing to take some pretty significant risks to procure an abortion if safe and legal ones were not available. And if I hadn't had that as an option, like I don't, I genuinely don't want to speculate about what I might have done. It was, it felt like my life was ending. And I think that a big part of why I have been uncomfortable sharing this with anyone for, for a very long time, like for, for years, aside from my partner, I only told two of my closest friends about this. That was the, the only people I told. And I've told a few more people recently but it always felt like a very big deal to tell someone that I had an abortion until 2 a.m. after this thing was leaked and I put it on Facebook because it just seemed like a good moment to do that. But um, but anyway, I think a big reason of the part that I was uncomfortable with telling people about this is that for me, this decision just came down to what I wanted for my life, which I think a lot of people, particularly Christian conservatives, cast as a selfish and insufficient reason to end a pregnancy. And, you know, abortion is stigmatized, period. But I think that I look a lot like the Christian stereotype of an immoral woman who is avoiding the consequences of her sins. And even though I'd been an atheist for many years prior to having an abortion, it is very hard to shake those feelings. And, that, you know, I've had to work through a lot of internalized shame around that. And by the way, shame was not helped by the fact that I experienced some pretty blatant, condescending, sexist bullshit from the male physician that actually dispensed the abortifacient. There <laughs> it is. I knew there had to be some negative experience in the medical yeah. system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's hard most, to get through totally unscathed. It's true. It's true. But, you know, I, I went to Planned Parenthood and, and the vast majority of folks who were helping me through this process were amazing. I had a good experience. But yeah, the actual physician who dispensed the abortifacient felt the need to explain to me what the barrier method was. Because obviously, anyone seeking an abortion must need a lecture on how condoms work. So that was that was really nice. That was great. I was like, motherfucker, I've been having sex for for a lot of years. Since like before this, you I'm... were born, son. Oh no, that doesn't. <laughs> probably not. He's probably eighty. Um, no, actually, he was a young guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. So that was that was a really nice moment for both of us. That really felt great. But point being, kept this private for a long time because some some significant part of me believed that I am not the person that abortion rights are designed to protect. You know, I felt like I was freeloading off of a system that was not really designed for me. It was designed for the people who are in these more extreme circumstances, you know, who don't, it's not just that they don't want to be pregnant, it's that they can't be pregnant. And I wonder how many other people feel like that and how helpful it would be to have more folks talking about <laughs> their very vanilla abortion experiences because it, it turns out that I'm incredibly typical of the kind of person who seeks an abortion in the United States. Most people are in their 20s that get that have abortions. People from all different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds get abortions. And, and most importantly, for the point that I want to make here, is that the majority of people who seek abortions do so for reasons that look very much like mine. They just don't want to be pregnant for some reason, right? Either at that point or just ever. Um, like the, the majority of the time it's, it's like financial reasons. Having a kid at that time would be too expensive or would interfere with education or work or something. Sometimes it's relationship issues. And, but, but a lot of people are just saying some version of they just don't want to be pregnant. And I believe a majority, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are people who already have one or more children. That's correct. Yeah. 
and for whatever reason, don't want to have another one, can, don't feel like they're in a position to have another one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That That is that is the most common thing. The number of abortions that are the result of rape and incest and these other these other kinds of friends cases are very, very small, small percentage. And I'm, I'm not saying that at all to diminish the importance of those cases, but to highlight the fact that like access to abortion is important in a much broader way than those cases might suggest. And I'd, I'd like to see more rhetoric focused on that point. You know, it was it was the most important thing in the world to me that I'd be able to access a safe abortion at, at that point. And it remains one of the most important decisions I have ever made in my life. And I mean that in an unequivocally positive sense. And what I've been mulling over for the past few months as we've been waiting for this decision to come out is the fact, like I've been turning attention explicitly toward the fact that like, actually not wanting to be pregnant is enough of a reason to not be pregnant. It's right. not selfish. It's an active choice about literally the rest of your life. And you know, my, my concern and only focusing on the edge cases is that those are the easiest cases for us to find common ground with Christian pro-life activists. And I, that, I don't know if that sounds counterintuitive as a concern, but I can explain. I don't often see my experience represented in this debate. And that feels very pointed, given that my experience is so incredibly common. Mm. And it feels to me like the implicit message there, intentional or not, is that it's difficult to defend my decision to have an abortion. And I think that if you really inspect where that comes from, it comes from the terms of the argument as conservative Christians have defined it. Like to them, bearing children is a fundamental sacred duty. To them, people who have sex under circumstances that they don't approve of deserve to be punished with pregnancy and parenthood. I, and, you know, I don't need to say that that's not hyperbole. I saw people arguing on in Facebook comment sections all day yesterday about how if, if people aren't prepared for the consequences of sex, they shouldn't have sex. And fuck that. <sighs> sex is a fundamental human experience. And I'm very grateful that we have technology that makes that separable from parenthood. That we've been using since time immemorial. And yeah. also, by the way, when you say people there too, they mean obviously mainly women, the, pe- the person who can become pregnant. Correct. Will end up with the consequences. Face the consequences mean women face the consequences, essentially. Exactly. So I thought it was worth talking about this in this moment because I I think, I think that we need to make pro-life advocates say explicitly what they really think here. And I think that it's very hard to explain to a person like me why I should have been forced to completely derail my life in a completely permanent way without making arguments that are explicitly about the oppression of women and or explicitly about imposing specific Christian doctrines on me that I don't believe in, that I don't share. And I think I think they need to be forced to say that out loud because we all know that this argument cannot legally rest on discriminatory ideas or ideas that impose specific rel- religious beliefs on people. That's illegal and conservative lawmakers know that. And I think that that's why they've shifted their language to this apparently secular space of arguing where when life truly begins and making these vaguely scientific sounding claims about when the heartbeat um, develops or whatever. And this has never been about that. If it, if it were, and I'm plagiarizing this point from you, I've heard you say this several times, and I, it's, I think it's really important. If it were about that, then rape exceptions would be a complete non sequitur. It would make no sense because it's about the fact that that's a life and you can't murder it. This argument is explicitly about restricting the autonomy of women. And for many, if not most, 
pro-life activists, it's explicitly about their personal Christian beliefs and wanting to codify those into law. And for those of us that are active in the secular and humanist and atheist spaces, like keeping that point as central and explicit in our discussions as we can, I think is super important. And maybe that entails defending people like me. We've talked about the immediate need for funding to get people to places where they can get abortions. And there's also the longer term task, uh, what you call deep, slow educational work organizing that will not only help people safely access abortion in the short term, but will change how people, especially people of faith, Think about abortion in the long term. This is something you know a lot about, the work being done by church groups, not only to provide uh, funding, but the vast time and energy they dedicate to shaping how people think about abortion. In the nation, you focus on a group called Faith Choice Ohio. You call it the future of abortion rights activism. Tell us about them. Faith Choice Ohio, this is another group that used to be part of a national umbrella called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. They're now fully their own organization. And I attended a a training that they did last September where they had about 20 people. Everyone was on Zoom. Some people were members of the clergy. They were even wearing their clergy collars, right? Some people were just sitting there in their t-shirts, you know, hanging out at the end of a day, ready to learn how to help people self-manage their abortions. And this training was remarkable to me because it was framed in the language of faith and religion and sort of the moral case for helping one's neighbor in a situation like this. And I think in one sense, this is really important because helping people get access to safe abortion-inducing medication is going to be a huge, hugely important part of the organizing in the post-Roe landscape. Unlike before 1973, we now have safe medication that can be used to induce an abortion. And so part of what this group is doing is training clergy members so that when someone comes to you and says, I need help, I can't make it to the nearest clinic that's four hours away, or I can't fly you know, to Oregon, that they have the resources and the training and the understanding to know how to help someone in that situation. But the other part of this that's so important is that churches have been the base of power for the religious right. And I think the anti-abortion movement has been extremely skilled at organizing in those spaces, at making sure that abortion is part of Sunday school classes and sermons and that pastors are talking about it from the pulpit. And this has been a decades-long project of, of reaching people in their places of worship and and in these like really important intimate spaces of their lives to you know preach about abortion and Elena Ramsey the head of Faith Choice Ohio was one of those people she grew up in Ohio going to the assemblies of God church and she would hear all this anti-abortion messaging that she absorbed until she herself was raped in college and and that sort of opened up a different perspective for her and so i think that work of culture change of educating people that you can be a person of faith and still 
believe in the right to abortion and even believe that supporting the right to abortion is part of your faith. That is a sort of granular grassroots work that I think really has to be done by organizations based on the ground in communities like Ohio. In conclusion, let's not forget that the right to abortion passed because of a national movement that was rooted in states and cities. And overturning Roe now may be a move that leads to a revival of that movement and its transformation into something stronger. Because after all, the great majority of Americans support the right to abortion. It's been about 60-40 in favor for, for decades now. In the most recent poll, only 8% of Americans said abortion should be illegal in all cases. So the great majority is with us. It is a grim time. We have a lot of work to do. And it's good to be in this fight with such good allies, the ones you have told us about and the ones that you report on. Let's start with something that we sort of take for granted that socialists support abortion and socialists have always been part of the campaigns in support of choice. Why, though, do socialists support abortion rights? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's sort of an, yeah, it's sort of a no-brainer in many ways, um, but I think it's worth reflecting on. I think as social and socialists have supported this right to abortion and to reproductive rights um, for a, a long, long time. Uh, and I think it's partly because socialists are just for the maximum amount of human freedom. That's what we're fighting for, really. Um, you know, one of the worst things about capitalism is that in order to exploit people, it has to exercise arbitrary authority over pretty much every aspect of our lives. Um, and that's, you know, exercised by all these capitalist institutions like the state that uh, decide a lot of things uh, for us. And I think with something like abortion, you know, this should be the the decision of women or people who are pregnant, not uh, anything to do with the state really. And socialists have recognised that from early on. You know, similarly um, recognise that people's sexuality, what they do with their bodies should be uh, their decision, not that of the state. Um, and I think the other important reason is that the denial of abortion rights is a really important, and just the control of women's reproductive systems is an important part of women's oppression. And, you know, that's sort of where the origins of this really is that, um, you know, the system has oppressed women in the nuclear family and uh, used them as kind of the the empty vessels that churn out babies and raise the next generation and, you know, even though a lot of things have moved on in many ways or um, improved for women, that's still an expectation that women um, do most of the, you know, domestic labour and the raising of the next generation. So, it's always been important to capitalism to kind of have some control, exert some control over that process and to um, keep women in the nuclear family and I think for the right especially, that's, that's really important to defend that as part of defending the system overall. Yeah. So, what does this have to do with the sort of working class politics that define um, socialist politics? Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's really a class question um, in many ways. And and this has been the, the case, again, from early on that the socialist movement and the workers' movement took abortion rights and reproductive rights 
very seriously because they could see that, um, you know, how how terribly it affects working class women in particular. Uh, for one, like working class women are much more burdened by their role in the home and, you know, having a million kids contributes to that and the socialist movements always maintain that women have a right to engage in politics and social life outside of the home. Um, but I think as well just just like the question of abortion and reproduction is is a class question. You think about it, wealthier women can afford um, and always have been able to afford expensive contraceptives or upmarket clinics. For working class women though, they've just been butchered by, you know, back alley abortionists or um, poisoned by what used to be called abortifacients, I learned recently, um, which are just these dodgy, you know, vials of, of stuff that w- working class women were sold on the cheap to uh, supposedly uh, get rid of their pregnancies but would often kill them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a long uh, history of the workers' movement fighting for this. Actually, in Australia, there's um, some nice stories of the, the union movement um, teaming up with women's rights groups and pro-choice groups to push back against anti-abortion legislation like uh, with Joe Bjorki-Peterson in Queensland when he tried to move against abortion. So, yeah, I think it's really intimately linked. I think we shouldn't forget the fact that we're talking about thousands of women dying Mm. through not having access to abortion um, or through a botched, um, yeah, backyard-type illegal in inverted commas, abortions in America, and that being obviously disproportionately poor working class women and and people of colour in particular in America mm. right now. So, yeah, like it's a extremely serious issue for working class women. Yeah, and it's why, if I can just add, like the demand for socialist women hasn't just been – oh, sorry, for socialists uh, around this issue has not just been abortion rights should be legal – uh, it's that it should be free, on-demand, safe, accessible. You know, it, it's sort of meaningless yeah. and, and some of the states in America prove this actually. It's quite meaningless to have abortion rights if it's not uh, cheap or free or uh, available nearby. Um, yeah. And, again, that's something that for ruling class women or wealthy women doesn't really matter that much because they can often, you know, uh, catch a plane somewhere where abortion is uh, legal or accessible uh, for working class women it's a it's a major demand and always has been caught this article on the Boston Globe, your vote won't help restore abortion rights, which is certainly a thought provoking or provocative headline. Um, it, it's written by uh, David Daly. He's a senior fellow at fairvote.org. Uh, he's also the author, in fact, he's been on the program before, uh, of the book Rat F to Why Your Vote Doesn't Count and Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy. Also the former editor-in-chief at Salon.com. Uh, you can tweet him at Dave Daly number 3 or at fairvote. Dave, welcome back to the program. Uh, tell us about why our vote won't help restore abortion rights. Thanks for having me back on, Tom. Um, the short answer is gerrymandering. Um, what Justice Alito said in this draft opinion that uh, is presumed likely to become the new law of the land is that it was time to return 
abortion uh, to the political process in the states. The trouble is, as Justice Alito well and fully knows, uh, that the, the game has already been rigged by his side in the states. Republicans rule from the minority in places like Ohio and Florida, Texas, uh, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, where uh, it is all but impossible for even majorities of Democrats amounting to hundreds of thousands of voters um, to 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 change their elected representatives and and put the other side in power. So if you cannot um if the state legislatures are wired in such a way that one side has all of the power, even when the voters are on the other side, returning the process to to politics doesn't work. Yeah. So like in Florida, where Ron DeSantis won by 33,000 votes, uh, Donald Trump carried the state by only 51 percent, you note in your article here in the Boston Globe. And yet in their House of Representatives, the Florida House of Representatives, even though the state is about 50-50 in terms of or 51-49 in terms of people voting for Democrats or voting for Republicans. They have uh, 78 Republicans and 39 Democrats, um, which is pretty mind-boggling. The Republicans hold 65% of the state house, and, uh, and, and that's, I mean, you know, the same thing in Ohio, the same thing in Wisconsin, the same thing in Michigan, as you pointed out. So, uh, number one, I'm assuming that, in part, this is something that could have been corrected by the Supreme Court long ago, but they chose not to? That's exactly right. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court effectively blessed the radical extreme partisan gerrymandering of our states. Uh, you know, in a handful of decisions back in, in the last decade, especially in one uh, in 2019, in which they closed the the federal courts to to partisan gerrymandering claims. And what they said then was kind of hilarious. They said, "Well, if voters want to do something about gerrymandering." they can elect different people to draw these maps. And the entire problem here is that the maps are drawn by politicians to lock themselves in power and to keep the voters on the other side, even huge majorities of them. Um, and the polls on this issue haven't really budged in two decades. A majority of Americans want to see Roe versus Wade remain law. They do not want to see abortion rights overturned. This is the case in Florida. It's the case in Texas. It's the case in Alabama, in Oklahoma, in Ohio, in Georgia, in state after state where legislatures are moving to restrict reproductive rights. And in all of the states where they will jump on this uh, in the next several weeks, if this draft opinion becomes law, the polls are on the other side. Alito wants to turn it back to the political process, but that doesn't work when the game is rigged. Right. So, and and two two kind of issues come to mind. One is a number of blue states, a number of Democratic-controlled states, have basically unilaterally disarmed California, for example. And I know they're not the only one. Um, I'm guessing you've got this stuff right at the top of mind. Um, has nonpartisan commissions that draw districts that are you know drawn along geographic and and uh, demographic lines or or population lines, basically. Um, so they're not, you know, taking into consideration the kinds of things that you do when you gerrymander, you know, uh, race or political affiliation or affluence or whatever. Um, and 
And, you know, there are some folks who are saying you, sh- you shouldn't do that. You should, you know, if the Republicans are going to gerrymander, you should gerrymander like crazy until you get, you know, enough of a, because, because we're, you know, the, the, the reason that everybody is saying that the Democrats are probably going to lose the House of Representatives this fall is because so many states now have so effectively gerrymandered. And when Democrats try, like in New York State, it gets struck down by a bunch of democratically appointed uh, Supreme Court justices, state Supreme Court justices. And when Republicans try in, in some states and it gets struck down, they just say, screw you, we're going to do it anyway. You're exactly right. We're watching this unfold right now in the state of Ohio, where Republicans have drawn a 13 to 2 map that is uh, that has been rejected by the state Supreme Court now four times. And yet they are just persisting and they have run out the clock so long that they're going to have the 2022 elections in Ohio for Congress on a map that has been declared unconstitutional. Republicans will likely win 13 of the 15 seats in a state that's probably 53-47 on a presidential breakdown, maybe 54-46. And that could shift four or five congressional seats. The balance of power in Congress right now is only four or five congressional seats. So this unconstitutional map could make all the difference for the entire country. So I think you're exactly right when you say what Democrats have done here is not enough. Um, We have got to be thinking not just about how you fix partisan gerrymandering, which is a huge problem, but we have got to be thinking about the structure of the U.S. Senate where it's right now 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans, even though 41 million more people nationally prefer Democratic candidates in 2020. Uh, By 2035, you are likely to have a U.S. Senate uh, that 70 percent of the population lives in 30 states and has 30 senators. So when you add the filibuster in, you are giving smaller, whiter, rural conservative states and effective veto power over everything. Right. That's then which you, is the whole point of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, exactly. let's, let's just be upfront about this. Um, so so uh, first of all, it seems to me that Democrats messaging sucks on this. Nobody <laughs> knows what gerrymander means. They need to stop referring to these things as gerrymanders and start calling them rigged elections. Amen. And 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 so uh, number one, number two, um, how, uh, you know, the Republicans got their rigged elections through a court-based strategy. They took case after case after case to the Supreme Court and packed the court as heavily as they could so mm-hmm. that they could be allowed to gerrymander. Um, There's there no mistake about it. And they also uh, just pull out all the stops and pour massive amounts of money into state after state in the elections in the years that, that end with zero or the year immediately thereafter where, where these maps are drawn. So what should Democrats be doing now? They need a long-term structural game to win back power in state legislatures. They need to be really focused on 2022 governor races in these gerrymandered states like Wisconsin and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, where that governor is the only thing that hangs between um a majority of voters and extreme one-sided minority rule, even in states that ordinarily tilt fairly blue. And I think 
it is time for us to be talking about what we're going to do to fix the United States Supreme Court, which has six conservative justices, five of them appointed by presidents that lost the popular vote and confirmed by a U.S. Senate that lacks any that represents uh, a minority of America to a majority. Uh, And so um, we have to be talking about how we are going to balance and right size the federal judiciary. We've just heard clips today, starting with Amicus explaining abortion pills. This is Hell telling the story of the rise of anti-choice politics. The Rachel Maddow Show called for fighting back. Christiane Amanpour on CNN spoke with Frank Schaefer about his role in launching anti-choice politics into the evangelical world. Serious inquiries only argued that we need to reframe the abortion debate rather than seed that it is morally ambiguous. Start Making Sense discussed faith communities teaching reproductive justice. Red Flag Radio explained the class element of reproductive rights. And Tom Hartman spoke with David Daly about the uphill climb to overcome gerrymandering to bring democracy back to the state houses and Congress. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Shortwave discussing a longitudinal study following people after their abortions. People say that having strong positive emotions and strong negative emotions, both of those reduce over time. And people tell us that they stop thinking about the abortion. One woman told us, I only think about it when you call me for these interviews. And Serious Inquiries Only discussed the why not just give it up for adoption idea. This is my first year in my position, and I'm trying to think through like how much fun it would have been to deal deal with pregnancy, you know, become like obviously pregnant to people and then have to ex- have to I, you would have to explain over and over and over that like no, uh, like actually I'm I'm doing this this adoption thing instead. Like it's I mean, you know, the physical the physical stuff is part of it, but like the idea that it's not disruptive just to be pregnant for for 9 months, but not just disruptive, that's that's putting it way too lightly. Yeah. The idea it's that hell. that doesn't make it, yes. <laughs> the idea that that doesn't make the entire experience like way more traumatic yeah. at every level is just ridiculous. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I just have a few more thoughts to uh, tack on to the end of today's show. First, I would like to warn against the entire the Republican Party is the dog who caught the car and doesn't know what to do with it kind of framing. The right is not going to lose the ability to rally their base in anger, at least not for long, but probably not at all. As we heard today, there was a lull in political enthusiasm for the Christian right after they lost the fight on desegregation, but they found a new issue in abortion to rally around that has suited them just fine. Today, their movement is far more politically engaged than it was, and they already have fights lined up for days. Obviously, overturning marriage equality is going to be right near the top of the list, but looking forward to stuff that 
isn't nearly settled yet, trans rights, critical race theory, and the rest of all of their reactionary agenda is already laid out for them. There's no reason to think that they're going to sleep anytime soon. And in fact, the anti-abortion activists have been talking about how their fight is just starting because now they have to take it to the state-by-state level because they don't want any of the pro-choice states to be pro-choice, so they're going to fight those battles. And of course, they're going to try to pass federal legislation to make it illegal across the board. So they're never going to stop fighting. Don't assume for a second that the energy is about to get sucked out of that movement. And secondly, I want to share more thoughts on what you can do in this moment. And of course, these aren't my ideas. I came across a Twitter thread from an abortion fund activist that went modestly viral, who had some nuanced thoughts for those wanting to get active for the first time to help you find the most effective use of your energy. So we will link in the show notes to this Twitter thread along with other resources, but here is an abridged version of it. So the person writes, are you again horrified at the imminent demise of Roe versus Wade and wanting to get involved with abortion access? Welcome to the club. Does it seem like a good idea to connect with auntie networks and girls camping trips at this time? If so, please read on about why you shouldn't. Practical support networks help abortion seekers arrange and pay for travel-related expenses surrounding people's abortions. Many of these organizations are run by volunteers and or rely on volunteers. You should be one of them. Practical support organizations train vetted volunteers in reproductive justice, cultural humility, and anti-racist principles. Once you are trained, you'll have an answer for the questions below, which are crucial to providing successful practical support. Number one, are there trap laws in my state? These are targeted restrictions on abortion providers. Ad-libbing just a little bit, the point of this question is that if the laws in your state are sufficiently anti-abortion, even if it's technically legal, then your state may not be the best place to encourage someone to go. Question number two, how many clinics are in my state? Where is my nearest clinic? And do they have a legal limit at which point they cannot perform abortions? Again, knowing the lay of your own land will help you understand whether or not it's a good idea to invite people to your state for their abortion. Number three, do I live in a state that already sees a lot of people coming from out of state? Even states with friendly abortion laws are having to schedule people further out as more people from abortion-hostile states come to the friendlier states to seek care. That, in the same vein, I think is self-explanatory. Question four, do you know what language is stigmatizing and what isn't? Are you willing to do the anti-racism work necessary to be truly supportive? This is one that I think a lot of people are going to stumble on because it's it's a clear, I don't know what I don't know kind of situation. And people are so interested in being helpful and are so intent on their good intentions that they may lose sight of the fact that they really may need to learn some things about how to best do this work. And I think that question exemplifies that idea. Question five. How do you know this person is truly seeking abortion care rather than a hostile anti-abortion person? And if you are seeking abortion care, how do you know the person who offered to host me is truly supportive of your decision? 
Now, that question, above maybe all others, highlights the complicated nature of trying to create ad hoc support networks through the internet, and you may suddenly be realizing that a professional organization that has been doing this for a long time may be exactly what you need to plug into rather than trying to wing it. So the thread concludes, if this feels like a lot to consider and coordinate, it is. But it is very learnable, too. It just takes more planning than a quick Facebook or Reddit exchange could ever offer. We're not here to discourage you from helping. We're here to make sure people do it safely. If you're going to make a true difference, you need to take the time to learn it and partner with others who are doing the same. And with that, I will just reiterate that there are resources linked in our show notes. Whether you are seeking an abortion or are looking to help those who are, you are not alone in this and should never feel like you are. So please plug in to the existing networks that will be more than happy to welcome you on. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player and speaking of never feeling alone and joining an established support network join the best of left discord community which is full of interesting and thoughtful and helpful people to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, or anything you like. And as always, I am continuing to encourage you to send me your recommendations of all those types of things. Did you hear a good podcast episode? Did you read a good book? Did you see a good documentary? Send that my way. I really appreciate it. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.